Thanks, Tim. It is great to be here with you all tonight. And like Tim said, we've been friends for a number of years. And you'll realize this uh, years down the road that it's odd or rare to have friends who you really connect with after high school. But even to have friends who you connect with over the years and your friendship grows, that's even more rare. And so Tim has always been such a huge encouragement in my faith. And over really the last 10 years, our friendship has continued to grow. And it's been an incredible blessing to have that. And like he said, every time we talk, my heart for the Lord grows just from our friendship and relationship. And so I hope that you have friends like Tim in your life. I hope you have friends like that in your life right now who encourage you in your faith. It's cool also to see the way that God's worked over the years to see us now both having wives and see him have a little baby girl. And my wife Hannah is here with me tonight. We have a little baby boy on the way. And so, thank you, yeah. So it's, so it's exciting to see Tim be a father, to see his wife Mariah be a, a mother and to see the way that she cares for the child. It, it's really an incredible thing. And so it's a blessing to be here with you tonight and even just to worship. I, I feel so ministered to by just getting that time of worship together. And so thanks for having me here tonight. And I'm so excited to jump into this passage. We're looking at Exodus 20 tonight, Exodus 20. And this is a passage that I could really say had it not been for hardship and difficulty and suffering in my life, I don't think this passage would be so sweet. Tim and I both, when we graduated high school, I'd say went through a season of, of some challenges. And that was part of what connected us afterwards, was actually going through challenges and sharing about, this is what God is doing in my life. And things are so hard and so confusing, and I don't get what's going on. But somehow God is sweeter to me now. Somehow his word is sweeter to me now. Somehow his gospel is sweeter to me now. And so tonight we're opening Exodus 20. And if you have your Bibles, you can open up there. We're going to be in Exodus 20, and we're looking at the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments. And so I'm going to catch us up on the story to get us to the Ten Commandments, where God's going to give his law, his commands to his people. And these Ten Commandments are going to summarize how do God's people live as his people who belong to him. So here's what's going on in the story so far. His people, Israel, these are God, this is God's people, were once slaves in a land called Egypt. But God had promised long ago that he was going to bring them out. And while they are slaves in Egypt, God hears their cries. He knows that they are being oppressed and he hears their cries and he remembers. He's the God of their forefathers, of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And he has established his covenant, this special relationship with his people, and he's not gonna forget his people. And so he hears their cries. He comes to them in the midst of their hardship and he raises up a leader, Moses, to bring the people out of slavery. And the story goes on and as they're brought out of slavery, their enemy goes to try and overtake them and God gets this great victory and this great salvation over the Egyptian army as they cross the Red Sea. But you see as the story progresses and unfolds that God is showing his faithfulness over and over and over to his people. Even as they're uncertain, even as they begin to doubt, God, why did you even bring us out here in the first place? He continues to show his faithfulness. And as we arrive in Exodus 20 now, God has saved his people. He has delivered his people from slavery in Egypt. And now he's going to tell them, this is how you are to live as my people. This is my law. This is my, these are my commands. He's going to give them his commandments. Now the passage we're looking at tonight is also somewhat of a difficult passage for us to understand 
as modern day Christians. Because I think sometimes we have a really hard time understanding how we should relate to God's law. I mean, we know that grace is awesome. We know that God's grace and his mercy are incredible and they're praiseworthy. But sometimes when we get to the law of God, we have this question of what do we do with this? Should we follow God's law? Should we obey his law? Is this law something that we live our lives on a day-by-day basis, delighting in, rejoicing in, living And what does our relationship with God and his law look like? Some people will say it's kind of like you have law on one side and God used to be a God who had his law, but now he's all a God of grace. And so here's here's a quote that I think kind of gives you that view. I, I won't tell who the quote is from, but this is the quote. It says, grace doesn't make demands, it just gives. So grace doesn't make demands. There's no demands on your life from grace, it just gives. Now, on one side, you hear what that's trying to say. It's trying to say that God is so loving. He's so overflowing with mercy and kindness and grace. But at the same time, you have to ask the question, are there no demands? Is there no expectation for what happens to me as a Christian? If God saved me by his grace, and this is, this is a great thing that is highlighted, that God saves us by his grace before we've done anything good for us, for him, Romans 5, 8, which is my favorite verse in the scriptures, says that God chose his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You on your worst day, when you have nothing to offer, that is when God saves you. Saves us in our sin. But then we have to ask the question, what do we do now as Christians? Does God have a command, a demand, a requirement, a way that we are to now live as his people. And one way you could think about this is just to think about relationships in general. So think about the ways that relationships always require some display of commitment or affection. Take a high school dating relationship, for example. If you enter into a a dating relationship, even in high school, you know there's some expectations that you have. I mean, you could enter into a relationship and say, you say, you know, some relationships are all about the expectations and the celebrations and the holidays and the, the remembering it's two months, three months, four months. And you're like, I just don't want to do any of that. And so I want to I be in a relationship with you, but, but the person you're dating says this, I want to be in a relationship with you, but I just don't want the expectations. And so when I, w- when I wake up in the morning, you know, I just, I need to be alone in the morning hours. And so when I get to school, I'm often tired and I'm somewhat rushed. And so I'm just probably not going to say hi to you in the hallways. And I know that might feel odd, but I just don't want there to be a bunch of expectations on our relationship. I don't want it to feel like it's all about the rules and all the things that we do. And, and when it gets to lunchtime, you know, I'm going to eat lunch with my friends and I may or may not say hi to you but I just want that to be okay between us. I don't want to have a relationship that's all about the rules and the expectations. They say, you know, after school, I I have track and I have some things. And so I just, I'm not going to probably have time to hang out with you afterwards. It might happen, but I don't want the expectations. Like you you would know that, okay, that's a ridiculous relationship. That's not going to work. There's going to be frustration if one of you actually wants to get to know the other one. And so the question we want to ask today as we look at God's law is, what does it mean? to live as God's people. As those who have been saved by grace, how do we relate to his law? Is it right for God to have expectations? Is it right for him to call us to a certain type of life? Is it possible for God's grace and his law to go together? Or are they opposed to each other? 
Exodus 20, one through seven is where we're gonna answer that question. So Exodus 20, starting in verse one, says this. This is God speaking to his people. He has delivered them from slavery in Egypt. And he says this. God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. In this passage, we see that God is a jealous God. The Lord our God is a jealous God. That's what we're talking about tonight, the jealousy of our God. And for God to be jealous means that he is a God who is not going to share his glory with any other. He's not gonna share his glory with any other, and he is actually jealous for the love and the worship and the obedience and the devotion of his people. Now, when we talk about jealousy, we can often think of it in a negative way. And that's one way we can understand jealousy. But tonight, what we're gonna do is this. We're gonna ask, what does it mean for God to be jealous? What does it mean for God to be jealous for his people? That's the first thing we're asking. Then we're gonna ask, what is our response to this jealous God? What does it mean for God to be jealous and what should our response be? And I think as we look at this reality, it will help us understand even how we look at God's law and his grace and how those go together. So first, what does it mean for God to be jealous? When we hear the word jealous, we can think of it, like I said, in a very negative way. You might think of someone else having something that you want. And so you're envious of them. You lust after what they have and you're discontent. I mean, it could be anything from their shoes to their platform and the recognition that they get from other people to their body, to their family, to relationships that they have, to abilities and skills, reputation and image, all these things, you can become jealous, discontent with what you have, and you lust after something that someone else has. And this type of jealousy is a negative thing. We could, we could actually capture it potentially by just looking at verse 17, which talks about coveting. You could call this type of jealousy coveting. Uh, verse 17 is the 10th commandment, and the 10th commandment says this. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, You should not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or his female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that is your neighbor's. It's to covet, to long for what you have no right to own, for what you have no right to have. You're longing for something that's not yours and not just a desire, but a desire that goes into this unhealthy lust and coveting and bitterness perhaps as you don't have what you desire. And whether that's someone's spouse or livestock, or boyfriend, or reputation. It's longing for something that has not been given to you, that you don't have a right to be jealous over. However, there's another type of jealousy. And imagine this type of jealousy with me for a moment. It's the jealousy that a spouse has for their husband or wife. So my wife, Hannah, 
in a very real sense, has a right to be jealous for me. Imagine that I am just working long hours at the church and I'm hardly seeing my wife. And then when I do get off work, I don't spend time with her. I I go and I spend time on my other hobbies and I'm spending all this time away from Hannah. And she comes to me one day and she says, Mark, I'm frustrated. You, You wake up early, you wake up at six in the morning, you get into work and I hardly see you all day. You hardly text me throughout the day. I don't know what's going on. And then after work, you go and you hang out with your friends. And I feel like you're just not giving me your energy. You're not giving me your time or your affection, your interest. And, and I've just felt lonely and, and, and confused lately. Imagine if I were to tell Hannah this. Well, you know what, Hannah? You're just jealous. <laughs> you're just jealous. You're jealous because I'm spending all my time on work. And yeah, I'm working really hard. And you're just jealous because I'm hanging out with my friends. And I'm spending time on my hobbies and I'm not spending time with you, what would she say? Exactly. (laughs) I am jealous. That's what I'm trying to tell you. I'm jealous because you made a covenant. You made a promise to me. When we entered into a marriage, you said that you were going to be there in sickness and in health, for richer and for poor, in all the circumstances of life. You said that you were going to be there and you're not. Yes, I'm jealous. Because don't I get your attention? See, there's a healthy type of jealousy. And actually, our marriage, if it didn't have that jealousy, would not be able to thrive. Perhaps the most dangerous thing that can happen to a relationship like a marriage is when jealousy completely goes away. It's apathy. You do whatever you want. I'm going to do what I want. We'll go our separate ways. We need jealousy to keep us together. It's tragic when it's absent. Now think then of God. What right does God have to be jealous over us? First of all, he's the creator. I mean, all things in heaven and on earth have been made by him, visible and invisible. Everything has been made by our God. But not only that, Not only is the the creator of all things, who has a right to all things, but he is also a God who saves his people. He is in a relationship with his people as their covenant God. I talk about the covenant of marriage that I have with my wife, but the covenant of marriage is actually just a taste and a glimpse into this greater marriage, this greater covenant that God has with his people. The ultimate relationship that would require this type of, of jealousy. God is jealous over his people as the creator and as the God who is his covenant God of his people. So let's listen again then to verses two to three. And what I want you to notice as we look at this is the way that God's jealousy and the way that his commands flow from his relationship with his people. So listen to verse two with me. Verse two says, I am the Lord your God. God speaking to his people. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. So notice, this is how the Ten Commandments are starting. God is establishing, this is who I am. I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out, who saved you from slavery in Egypt. And then notice what goes on in verse three. You shall have no other gods before me. I am the God who saved you. 
no other gods. No other God deserves your worship. No other God deserves your attention. Nothing else deserves your attention. I am the Lord, your God, who has saved you. This is the logic that's happening. I am the Lord, your God, therefore, no other gods. No other gods. And then the other nine commandments are gonna flow from this. This God who has saved his people. And what's vital to see here is that the law to God's people is actually coming after salvation. That they are first saved and then given the law, which means that they didn't, God didn't come to them and say, hey, look, I see that you're slaves in Egypt. And if you keep these commandments, I'm gonna free you. It's actually God who is first saved and brought his people out who says, I am the Lord, your God. This is who we are in this covenantal relationship. Therefore, this is how you live as my people. And this is the logic of the gospel, that salvation always comes first and then comes the law when God is relating to his people who have fallen from sin. Ever since the beginning, when we've fallen, from, fallen into sin, God has had to be a God who is going to save his people and then give them the law. And so God gives the law to his people, but he gives it based on their identity. I am the Lord your God who has saved you, therefore. And so here's what it means for you as a Christian, looking at the same logic, the God who saves his people from Egypt and then brings them into this relationship with himself, It's the same logic that happens in our salvation. Jesus Christ is the one who saves us from sin and death. And then God comes to us and he shows us what does life look like now with him. It looks different, it's transformed, it's better. You're no longer slaves. You live a new life, no longer in the old way. And the exodus that Jesus is going to perform is the greatest exodus that's ever occurred. The exodus from Egypt is when the people are brought out of slavery in Egypt, but Jesus is going to do an exodus of bringing his people out and even in greater way, he's gonna bring his people out of sin and death itself. So Romans 6, 6 says this. It talks about the way in which Jesus has brought us from enslavement. It says this. We know that our old self was crucified with him, with Christ, in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we might no longer be enslaved to sin. See, it's through Jesus and his ministry, through his death, because we have been joined together with him, that his death becomes our death. And his life becomes our life. You were once a slave to sin if you did not know Christ, but through Christ, you are no longer a slave. And so Romans 6.11 is gonna tell us this, that you should consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. So what that means then is that as God's child, as those who are in Christ, you have the obligation, the privilege, and the right to obey God. The obligation, the privilege, and the right. We often can think about obedience to God as a burden. Man, I I wanna do all these other things, but it says that I'm not supposed to in the Bible, so I won't. That's actually the opposite way. The way that scriptures speak about it is apart from Christ, we're slaves. We have no hope in the world, but this new way of life has opened through the cross so that we're no longer slaves to sin and death. I know that even generationally, one of the things that you as a generation value is authenticity, right? Being true to yourself. 
If someone is inauthentic or ingenuine, we, we call them out on that. That happens all the time in our world. If someone's preaching one value and then you realize that their life doesn't match up with it. They say they're all about social justice or the environment or whatever it may be and then something comes out about their own lifestyle and you're like, you're, you're not living into that. You just wanted the image and the reputation and the worship of people. Right? That, that's a, a sense of hypocrisy because we value authenticity, truth, honesty, openness, rawness. But think about this for a moment. What does it mean to be authentic as a Christian? What does it mean to be authentic as a Christian? It means to be true to who you are. But to be true to who you are, you have to know who you are. And what the gospel tells us is who we are. That we are those who have been slaves, who have been freed from slavery and been given this new relationship with God. So it's not that we look at our culture for cues of, to find ourselves. It's not merely a, about the expression of ourselves through the right music or the right style or the right taste or the right platform, social media, and the presentation of ourselves. But true authenticity comes actually in knowing and loving God as his child. It's authenticity in the truest sense, looking to him and his word. Think about it this way. A, a bird is most free when it's flying in the air. A fish is most free when it's swimming in the water. And when is a Christian most free? When they're loving and obeying their God. That's what you were made for. So how good is it for us that we have a jealous God, a God who is not indifferent, a God who does not leave us where we were, but he desires for our good and for his glory for us to give our whole selves to him in worship. This is what our God desires in his jealousy and his passion for his people. And so what, what is our response then to God's jealousy? We're gonna look briefly at the first three of the 10 commandments because they, they give us a view of what do we live like as Christians. The law of God is going to instruct how do we live as freed people? How do we live as people freed and now given the law of God to be our guide and to shape the way that we live? The 10 commandments, like I said, really touch on every single area of life. And we're gonna look at the first three of them. So this is the first commandment. And we're gonna look at how does it call us to a certain worship of God. The first commandment is this, verse three. You shall have no other gods before me. Now in the most narrow sense, this means don't worship another god. People of Israel at this time would have been tempted to worship Baal and Molech and Asherah and be involved in these other worships of the gods around them. They see the gods around them. and There's other gods they could worship. Christians in the first century might have been tempted to worship Caesar as supreme. Might have been tempted to worship Zeus or some other god. Today we could worship the god of Islam or Hindu gods. There's, there's all sorts of gods. But it goes even beyond that. Not just explicit other gods, but also anything as God. What is God calling us to? It's not just to not worship another God, but it's to worship nothing else as God. Because he's jealous that we live in this relationship with him as our God, which means that we don't worship our education. Think, man, if, if I just get on the right track in education now, if I get the right classes and the right grades and I can get into the right college and get on the right trajectory, then my life is really gonna, gonna come together in the way that I perfectly imagine it coming together. 
Now, there can be very healthy things about giving yourself to education, but it's also so easy for something like that, some goals, desire we have to functionally become our God, what is most important to us. I find for myself, I'm so easily, so easily driven by people's approval. I want people to like me all the time. Now, that could be a healthy thing in having recognition and community, but I find it so easy to live so much of my life in fear of what other people are thinking of me, living for approval, or just living for comfort or the next thing that's really going to bring life together. So how easy is it to put another God in the place of God, to put something else in the place? But God's calling us to this worship of him alone, saying, no, no, I am your God. I am the one you were made for a relationship with. Second commandment going on says this, you should not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is, or that is in the water under the earth. So in a very narrow sense, what is God doing? He's forbidding his people from making images or idols to worship. Things that would be representing this great invisible God. He says, don't make for yourself an image to worship. In Exodus 32, you're gonna see that the people of Israel are gonna do exactly this. They're gonna get a golden cow and then they're gonna say, these are the gods who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. But nothing above the earth, on the earth, under the earth can perfectly represent them. And yeah, we even laugh as you hear about it. A cow to represent God. It's the absurdity. But But that's what he's saying is don't worship anything. You think you can confine me to an image, to something of your own imagination. He's saying, I'm so far beyond that. You are not to put me in this image and to worship that. It's a God who reveals himself, who makes himself known. So not only does God desire that we worship him, but he desires that we worship him as he truly is. He doesn't desire that we just worship a God. And any any generic God that's close enough will do. He wants us to know him as he really is. He wants us to know him as the God that he really is. So in the first two commandments, he protects that. He says, I alone am your God. And you shall not worship any image. Don't try and make a representation of me. Then the third commandment tells us this. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain. For the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. We'll look at this one as well, looking at what God's commands are bringing us to. So what, what is he saying here, to not take his name in vain? Now, at this time, one of the things that people would have been tempted to do is to make sort of a business dealing and say, hey, I'm gonna, I'm gonna follow through on my end, you follow through on your end, and to make sure that you know that I'm gonna hold true to my bargain and I'll give you 100 bales of wheat or whatever it might be, I'm gonna say, I swear to God, I swear to God I'm gonna follow through on this. So one of the dangers of taking the name of the Lord in vain is actually that people would invoke the very name of God in order to get what they wanted. And they were taking it lightly. So that's a narrow way. How could you take the name of the Lord in vain? But more broadly speaking, how could we take the name of the Lord in vain? Really, it's anything we do in which we take God's name, his reputation, who he is, lightly. I mean, it could be as simple as saying God or Jesus Christ in a, in a throwaway way. As a curse, as, as just some throwaway, we take it lightly. 
but it could also be just living as though God didn't exist, taking his name lightly. A God who is worthy of all of our worship, worthy of all of our praise, and, and, and living as though he didn't exist. Really, every time that you or I fall into sin, we're taking his name in vain. When we steal, lie, cheat, have lustful thoughts, those are things in which we are really actually not giving God the true honor that he is due. So we're called to hollow God's name, to, to worship him in our whole of life. And so this is what God's calling his people to, to worship him alone. He is the God who has saved them, to not worship any other God and to give their whole lives to him. Now there's also a problem as you read through the Ten Commandments. Because as quickly as we know that God's law is good and it's meant to guide us as Christians, we also are going to see quickly our inability to keep God's law perfectly. So what this means is you have to have a dynamic relationship with the law of God. You have to have that dynamic relationship because at times what's gonna happen is you're gonna read God's law and it's gonna say, do not lie. And you think, I lie to protect myself often. Maybe they're not huge lies, maybe they are, but maybe they're just little, what we call white lies, little lies where we're wanting to make ourselves look a little bit better. We're not wanting to hurt someone, and so we don't tell them the full honesty that might actually be helpful. You might read God's word and you realize, I'm actually violating, I've, I've broken his commandments. So sometimes you're gonna read God's law, and this is what it's gonna do. His word will convict you. But what do you do when that happens? You remember who God is, that he is a merciful and gracious God, a God who saves his people, and you go to him. I have a mechanic whose name is Pat Patrick, which is a great name. <laughs> it's sort of the man so great, named him twice type of thing. Um, but Pat Patrick is my mechanic, and whenever I have an issue with my car, I go to him, and I trust him, because he's able to diagnose the issue, but he's also able to fix the issue, often for a great deal. And I respect that about him. But one way you could think about it is this. God gives us his law, and sometimes his law is like a diagnosis. Okay, these are all the things that need to be done on my car. And that diagnosis itself isn't gonna fix the issue. But at the same time, the same God who gives his law is also a healer and restorer and savior. So we need a dynamic relationship with God's law, meaning at times it might convict us and it might just put us in a spot where we say, God, I need your mercy today. I need your mercy. But not to let that drive you away from God, saying, God, I know I've sinned, I know I've done these things wrong, and you must just not want to see me right now, but actually to make that push you towards God. So at times God's law is going to convict us, and at times it's going to guide you. At times you might be in a situation where you don't know what to do, and his word unfolds truth and reality. It gives you wisdom on how to live. As those who have been saved by God's grace and now able to be guided and shaped by God's law, it's actually a tremendous blessing. It can bring clarity to uncertainty. If you read through the Psalms, one of the things you'll notice is how often the psalmists delight in the law of the Lord. Just one example is Psalm 119, 72, and says this. The psalmist is praising the Lord, and he says this. The law of your mouth is better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. The law of your mouth is 
better to me than thousands of gold and silver pieces. Saying there's nothing more precious to me. It's better than anything else. It's better than all the gold, all the wealth that I have, your law. See, those are the words of someone who has been brought to God, who has been saved by his grace and is able to delight in him in a new way. But we always remember that as we relate to God through his law, that it can only be our guide, really, for those who are first saved by his grace, for those who know God as their creator, for those who have been redeemed and saved by their God. And in times when it does reveal our sin, it doesn't leave us hopeless. It calls us to something more. It brings us to something more. It puts a vision of this is what life is meant to be, guided and shaped by God and his word. This is how you love God and you love others, which is how Jesus summarized the whole of the law of loving God and loving others. This is how you do it. But when we're convicted by the law, we're always brought to rely on God's steadfast love and mercy. We're always brought to remember that God is a jealous God who desires our affection, who desires our love. And how I want to end tonight is by looking again at the second commandment. There was a section we left out, which is verses five and six. And so this is where God is telling his people, you are not to worship any other God, any other idol, any other God being the first one. Then in the second one, he says, don't make an image. And this is the rationale that is given. Exodus 25 to six says this, You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. See, God is a jealous God who desires the love, the affection, the obedience, the glory that is due to his name but I want you to notice for a moment how God reveals himself here. He says that he's a God who will visit the iniquity of fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate him. And the image here is that those who hate, those who reject, those who push away God, he's saying, I'm going to be a just judge. He says it's to the third and the fourth generation, those who hate me, those who push against me, those who go against me, he's saying he will judge But notice and contrast that with what God says about his steadfast love. He shows his justice. He does not let injustice go. But his love, he's showing steadfast love, verse six, to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. His justice is shown to the third and the fourth generation. His love is shown to the thousand generations. One author, when looking at a similar text, made this statement. He said, if you were to think about this, and just even take the most literal interpretation you could of this verse, there's a thousand generations of God's steadfast love on display. If an average generation was 20 years, so father to son to daughter, 20 years. If an average generation was 20 years, he made the point that this, that that would mean there's 20,000 years of God's steadfast love. And if you were to take that beginning with Moses about 4,000 years ago, it means we have 16,000 years of God's steadfast love being shown generation after generation after generation after generation after generation after generation, 4,000 years before us, 16,000 years later. It's an incredible amount of love. 
And then you contrast that where he's saying, I'm going to show my justice. I'm going to show my justice. No injustice is going to slide. But he's the God who shows his justice to the third and the fourth generations, which some commentators say might be the amount of people that live in a generation or live in a household at a single time, three to four generations. Those who hate, those who reject. And so what's the point here? The point is not that God is, is not, is, the point is not that God slights his justice. God is God of justice. But the point is this, that God's steadfast love is what he is yearning and desiring to show over and over again to his people. Some people have talked about God's justice as a strange work, not meaning that it's weird or odd, but his justice as a strange work because it doesn't come most naturally to God to judge. He is just, he is a judge, and his justice is natural to him. But for him to judge his people, you have to provoke him over and over and over. And the scriptures reveal that God is a God who over and over again, he's slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, he's slow to anger. He sees his people, he sees them going away from him, sinning against him, rejecting him, forgetting him, not believing that he is faithful to them over and over. And he's slow, 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 patient, 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 waiting and waiting and waiting that they would repent. But you don't have to provoke God's love. You don't have to provoke him to love. None of us sitting here tonight, no matter what we may have done or even the sin that we might be in right now, have to come to God and beg him for his love. It is natural, it is overflowing, it is is flowing over and he's willing and eager to save. This is the God we serve. He does not let his justice go, but he is eager and eager to show his love. And even tonight, if we're in sin, if there's areas where we've hidden from God, his disposition is patience, patience, eager to forgive, eager to show his love. So what I want you to reflect on tonight, what I want you to consider is, is do you know God in this way? I mean, maybe, maybe your view of God is that you always have to do the right things or he's gonna be upset with you. Do you know he's a God who's patient, eager to show his love, Maybe tonight you've been walking in certain things and you feel like God doesn't really care. But we don't want to confuse his patience with his apathy. He's he's a God who's patient, but he's not apathetic to what's happening in our lives. He's a jealous God who desires you. Not because you have anything to give to God that he would need to then repay you. None of us by showing up here tonight, none of us by going to school and doing the right things, none of us by even sharing our faith are gonna put God in our debt that he says, how could I possibly repay Tim or Mark or Hannah? Yet at the same time, he absolutely delights when he's in relationship with his people. He delights in your coming to him. He delights when you worship him with your heart. He's patient and merciful. So I just want you to reflect. Maybe there's something in your life where you feel like I've been holding this back from God. I've been holding this back to know that he is patient, to know that he is jealous, jealous in the best way, jealous in the way that he desires what is best for you. He's for your good and he's for his glory. It's a beautiful thing that those go together. Let's pray.
God, we're reminded of your jealousy tonight as we read that you are a jealous God. We thank you that you're a jealous God. We thank you that when we run into destruction, when we run away from you, that you don't sit back apathetic and indifferent, but you are passionate, that you are loving, that you are merciful. We thank you that you are ready to forgive, that your love is to the thousands, your steadfast love is to the thousands, and you desire to show your love. I pray for all of us here, Lord. I pray for myself and the students and the leaders. I pray that if there's anything in our hearts, Lord, that's distracted us, that's brought us away from you, that you would reveal it. And I pray that that diagnostic doesn't leave us in a place of hopelessness, but in a place of great hope, knowing that there is more with you than anything this world has to offer. We thank you that you are jealous. Thank you that you love us. And we thank you that you have given what is most precious to us, your very own son, Jesus Christ. That yes, you are a God who asks for our lives, but you have given what is most precious to you. That you hold nothing back from us. I pray for anyone who's holding you at bay, Lord, you would soften our hearts and that we would live in your jealous love. We would delight in your word. We would delight in your law. And that we would know you as the great and jealous God that you are. In the precious name of Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen.